I'm Rasa Kay, and I am talking with Dr. Zishan Khan. He is the medical director at the Deborah Institute for Sleep Medicine. Sleep disorder, what exactly is disordered sleep? So typically we define sleep disorders as any medical condition that can disrupt one's sleep pattern or their sleep. Um, and the international classification of sleep disorders, kind of the reference we use in sleep medicine, has divided sleep disorders into seven categories. And under those seven major categories, there's over 60 diagnoses under that. You know, everybody can have bad sleep. So who is particularly at risk for a sleep disorder? The National Institute for Sleep Medicine Research at the NIH, they estimate that over 170 million uh, Americans may suffer from uh, sleep disorders at some time in their life. So the two most common sleep disorders are insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea. Typically for insomnia, the main risk factors are people with underlying medical conditions, uh, psychiatric issues, acute stresses like the pandemic, obviously. And sleep apnea has been linked to more specifically heart disease, obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes. So what are some of the effects on your body from lack of sleep? If you're isolating any other underlying condition causing the lack of sleep, just having sustained poor sleep, what can it do to you? That's a great question because that's been studied for many years. So there, we kind of div div divide sleep deprivation and insufficient sleep over acute or chronic, uh, you know, based on the timeline. So acute sleep deprivation can lead to people having altered judgment. You know, there have been studies where people who have stayed awake for 24 hours, their performance and ability to do things, certain tasks, is almost equivalent to people who have a blood alcohol level of about 0 0.01. So that's obviously uh, illegal in certain states. But they can have mood swings where they you know, have similar symptoms to anxiety and depression. They can obviously, again, have issues with cognition and memory consolidation. And then long-term effects have been linked to um, a lot of work-related issues. You know, we've heard about Chernobyl and uh, ExxonMobil, that disaster that they had. So that was from chronic sleep deprivation for those workers. There's also been linked to cardiovascular disease from people who have not been sleeping for at least at least a seven hours a night, as well as people having issues with Im their immunity. Especially nowadays, we worry about immunity, so people were given the flu vaccine, and people who were stayed awake for several days, their immune response to the flu vaccine was uh, kind of blunted and not as strong as those who were sleeping well. So there's been a lot of data showing that people who unfortunately don't get enough sleep are linked to a lot of medical issues. What happens to our body when we go to sleep? You know, you know we define sleep as a state where it's a restful state where we're not responsive to the external stimuli around us. And we obviously assess sleep in terms of your brain activity. So we define sleep in, you know, sleep stages into two main categories, one being non-REM sleep and one being REM sleep. So in non-REM sleep, our brain and our body generally, your blood pressure drops, your heart rate drops, uh, your brain activity kind of slows down. And in REM sleep, your heart rate and breathing pattern and your brain activity can be very variable and actually very active. So it, it kind of depends on the sleep stage and you know what's going on in, in somebody's uh, kind of sleep cycle. But are all of these stages, the, the brain activity, the brain rest, is, is this part of what is so necessary for sleep? I mean, if you're short of that, what does that lead to in terms of your the, the way your brain regulates the rest of your body. Right, right. So that's a great, you know, that's a great question again because sleep, you know, for many years we're still 
kind of tackling why we sleep as humans and as mammals or animals, right? So we believe that the reason why sleep is why we sleep is because it has a restorative fact. You know, our brain, our neurotransmitters get replenished. There's again synapses and memory consolidation happens. Our metabolism, you know, slows down. We get that rest in that sense too. Again, if you don't have enough sleep, that can lead to a lot of disruption with your overall general health. So how much sleep do you need? I mean, we used to hear about about people who would famously declare, I only need four hours of sleep. Martha Stewart would say that. Right. And Margaret Thatcher was another one, only four hours of sleep a night. And here, here she is ruling a major country. How much sleep do we really need? And is all that about four hours? Is that all bogus? Uh, yeah, I think there's there's some truth and false to that, you know, to that statement. So, on average, you recommend adults to get seven hours of sleep. Now, the curve for for how much sleep people need can it's kind of a U-shaped curve. So, you know, some people are a bell curve. You know, people can be on different sides of that bell curve, and most people know how much sleep they need. But if you ask them, you know, if you sleep five hours, how do you feel as opposed to seven hours or nine hours? And most people can kind of give you an idea that if they sleep for seven hours, they feel relatively well-rested. The interesting thing about, about that is that in America, about 35% of the people do not get seven hours of sleep, which is very important. We're kind of a sleep-deprived nation. We're a totally sleep-deprived yeah. nation, and we may take a little too much pride in it. Yeah. Certainly babies sleep a lot more than adults, but teenagers seem to need a whole ton of sleep. Older people seem to get by on less. How does it vary across a lifespan, that sleep requirement? Right, right. So. So sleep definitely the requirement depends on by age. Newborns and you know babies, infants, they obviously need a lot more sleep, and they typically sleep for 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And as children become you know toddlers and young adults, they typically need about 10 hours, 12 hours. And teens, there's always that battle with teens in terms of how many hours they sleep and how many hours they they want to sleep as opposed to they should sleep, right? But uh, but on average for adults, we say about seven hours. And as we get older, that average can can vary, but you know there are some natural changes with sleep as we get older. You know that the sleep latency or the t time it takes you to fall asleep is can sometimes be longer. With age, it can change. So, what's the difference between a heavy sleeper and a light sleeper? I think when people kind of uh, I guess say that they, I think what they usually mean is that how responsive they are to the environment, right? So if they're a deep sleeper, many people say, you know, they could sleep through a fire or a robbery or something and they will not wake up. As opposed to a light sleeper, they're, they're more, their arousal threshold is what we use, kind of a medical terminology that is lowered because they're more sensitive to any kind of noise or any kind of disturbance. Why some people are in that sense, I think, medically speaking, we're not too sure at this point. There's a lot of research being done on that, but it may be just what level of sleep you get into, what stage of sleep you may be, and how responsive you are at that point. Does a light sleeper then tend to have more sleep deprivation? Uh, not always, not always. I think it's hard to kind of generalize in that sense. It can be. I mean, they may have more disruptive sleep, so they're not getting that nice consolidated five, six, seven hours in a row. It may be bits and pieces. And you were talking about the, the sleep latency and how long it takes to fall asleep. The difference between trouble falling asleep then and staying asleep. Are these two different kinds of sleep disorders or this is just uh, another aspect you would look at? Yeah, so insomnia is how we kind of, it's kind of the major category. So 
Insomnia kind of entails difficulty initiating sleep or maintaining sleep. It, it can be variable in terms of what symptoms you know patients report, whether, again, whether they have difficulty just falling asleep. They can say they take some hour, two, three, four hours to fall asleep. And some people say, well, I'm, I don't have a problem falling asleep, but then in the middle of the night I wake up and then I can't fall back asleep. So that can, or they wake up multiple times and then, they, again, they struggle from, to fall back asleep. And the problem with the disrupted sleep, if you wake up but you do manage to fall back asleep, and get a couple of hours, is that okay? Or is that still a problem? It can be definitely a problem. It can be kind of a symptom of an underlying issue, a medical condition related to your sleep, whether it could be related to sleep apnea where you're having breathing pauses and breathing events, which is waking you up, or it could be from your insomnia. So insomnia, if people are kind of, obviously, if you're stressed or you have things on your mind, many people wake up multiple times at night and they can tell you that, you know, when I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm thinking about, what I did the, the prior day or I'm planning for the next day or I'm thinking about, you know, my father who passed away or whatever it may be, right? All right, so stress and sleep issues. Certainly during this pandemic, we have been hearing about people stressed out and having sleep issues uh, because of it. So is that just anecdotal or are you seeing that in your practice as well? Yeah, we've been definitely seeing that uh, on a daily basis with patients reporting that. Um, there's, I guess, two types of patients that we're seeing. We're seeing patients who had issues with insomnia prior to the pandemic, and it's gotten a lot worse. And then there's people who said they had never had any problems sleeping, and now, unfortunately, due to the pandemic and social, economical kind of stressors, their disruption with sleep has uh, kind of been more of an issue, obviously, more recently. The way we def define insomnia is if it's the symptoms are happening for more than three months consistently, right? So I think if you've you know, the pandemic started in, in the U.S. in roughly end of February, early March, right? And if it's been persistent symptoms, and again, if it's causing other problems, again, with mood or behavior or your, the way you feel during the day, I think that's where it needs to be addressed, and you have to see kind of a medical professional. I, I'm sure after the pandemic is over, I'm sure we're going to have new syndromes, you know, related to it. You know, as a lung doctor, we, we're seeing people who have fibrosis. I'm sure there's going to be insomnia linked to that because whether it's the fear, right, post-traumatic stress disorder, all these things are going to be linked to it, I'm sure. Because, you know, nobody in our generation has seen something like this, right? So this is something that's kind of unprecedented. So, so if you're stressing now, this, your stress level is probably not going to be significantly reduced once a vaccine shows up or or we reopen the economy fully, or you know, there's something's coming down the pike, you've got sleep problems, they need to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to think that magically the vaccine's gonna come out and our sleep's gonna be back to normal, I think that's, that's gonna be difficult because if this has been going on for so long, it's gonna take time to fix it, right, so. All right, and then the next thing we hear from a lot of these folks mm -hmm. during the pandemic is, I've been having the craziest dreams. How does your lifestyle or your living factors or your stress level impact your dreams once you are lucky enough to be sleeping? Right, right. Oh, I, I think that dreams uh, are, are a very interesting uh, kind of category in themselves. Or kind of, uh, And I don't kind of take pride in saying that I can interpret dreams because that's more of a psychological angle. But a lot of times when we have things on our mind, that can kind of trigger all kinds of dreams, um, obviously stress and all these things we mentioned can definitely trigger odd dreams for sure. Um, all right, here's the other issue about the dreaming. Now, for example, my husband had uh, has sleep apnea, but until he got it diagnosed 
and um, under control with CPAP. So of course, he was falling asleep all over the place. His, his health was probably pretty poor, his coloring, all of that. I mean, it just changed everything when he finally got on the CPAP. But he said very early on that I'm dreaming again. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the stages of sleep, dreaming or the lack of dreaming, does that indicate something about the quality of sleep you're getting? It, it sometimes can. So not everybody has dream recollection, um, but many times what you're saying, I see that a lot. And, and that we believe that's probably because, you know, before they were treated for their sleep apnea, they were not going into a deeper sleep or it wasn't as consistent. So a lot of times when they're being treated, they go into those deeper sleeps. So typically you dream either in stage REM sleep or what we call slow wave sleep or stage three. So it's most likely that he's getting more episodes of that, like a normal sleep cycle that he should be should have been getting prior to obviously having the issue. All right. So are naps good or bad for you if you're trying to have healthy, good quality, restorative sleep? Uh, can you catch up on lost sleep with napping? Is that something that will counteract the impact of a sleep deficit? The answer is that it depends because sometimes naps can be a symptom for an underlying medical issue. So if people are not sleeping well at night, they may be sleepy during the day and they may be kind of dozing off and napping unintentionally, and that's where it's definitely problematic. Now, there is a dip in your circadian rhythm in the early afternoons, and some people do feel refreshed, you know, if they take a 30-minute power nap or up to an hour, um, and they can actually improve their productivity after that. But, you know, if it's causing issues where people are dozing off at all periods of time, like you're telling me about your husband, then that can obviously be an issue, and it needs to be kind of looked further. And I think you asked about kind of sleep debt and accruing it, right? It will, will, yeah. yeah. Will napping help you um, counteract it? Right. So napping, so as you accumulate sleep debt, unfortunately you can never get it back. You can never kind of, I guess, decrease it, right? It's, it kind of adds up and it keeps accruing. So napping will kind of help you more for that, how you feel at that moment. It's not like there's a barrel of sleep and a barrel of sleep debt that you can over Take, a lifetime, mm, yeah. just just sort of, no. No, unfortunately not. <laughs> well, that's depressing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, so if you're having sleep trouble, and say you were pretty much okay before we crashed into this global pandemic and the anxiety and the stresses that it has brought on, so how long do you need to have crummy sleep before you need to start really worrying about a health impact? I think the difficult issue right now with the pandemic is that there seems to be no end, you know, unfortunately right now. It's hard for us to kind of know when the end is coming and when we're going to be able to treat it. But in terms of your effects on your health, you know, like I had mentioned before, if you have chronic sleep deprivation, you know, after days to months, it can really take a toll on your body and, and your health. So I think if you're noticing in terms of the way you're performing in terms of memory or cogni cognition in terms of doing your work or if your family members are noticing that you're having mood swings or they say that you know you're not acting right or something something's wrong then I think that's when it's probably a good idea to seek some kind of medical care at that point. How much time should it take you to fall asleep? On average it should take about 15 minutes to about 30 minutes at the most and that's obviously when you're trying to fall asleep you know sometimes people go into bed and they do other things sometimes it's a no-no in the sleep world but it should take about 15 to 30 minutes at the most, yeah. Treatments available to help with your sleep. Let's address first the non-pharmacological ones. Things like chamomile tea, even CBD tea from chamomile to cannabis. You know, a beverage before bed, nightcap, warm milk. Uh, any recommendations? 
for specifically for insomnia, right? The current belief is that the best and most effective treatment for insomnia is actually something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And that's usually conducted by a sleep psychologist or a psychiatrist. And it's kind of a multi-structured program where they do different techniques to kind of reestablish that connection between your brain and the bed, right? We all think about when we were kids, we would kind of magically close our eyes, fall asleep, and we'd wake up the next day. But our parents kind of trained us to do that, right? And I think reestablishing that connection is very important. So some techniques, like I mentioned, the cognitive behavioral therapy can kind of go through something called mindfulness, meditation, kind of different techniques to make your mind think of the moment and not about all these other thousands of things that our brains are kind of thinking at, at once. And I think we can talk a little bit about sleep routine and all that too. Chamomile tea and some of these over-counter things, I, there's no great data or research to support any of them, but I think that many people tell me that it helps them, and I think if, I think the concept is if it relaxes you, I think it's definitely worthwhile to pursue that, as long yeah. as it doesn't harm you. How about melatonin? Melatonin as well. So melatonin has been studied, and it actually has not shown to improve sleep onset. You know, But again, there's placebo effect too, right? So many people feel the difference, and they say, I feel better with it. And I think if it does help you, then I think it's not harmful in that sense. And some of these um, antihistamine products. The uh, over-the-counter, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I usually kind of say probably not a good idea because many of those medications can be addictive, right? Treating insomnia specifically, medications are almost like a band-aid. They don't actually solve the problem. You know, they kind of give you kind of a quick fix, but the underlying problem is there. there. So we always try to push for the non-pharmacological treatment for insomnia. All right, so that answers the question about the sleep aids that you could get from your, right, your right. pharmacy. And typically we do prescribe sleep aids, but it's really for kind of a you know dire circumstance where people are really not functioning for work or for family life. They really need something to help them. And I think for that condition, most of us agree that it's okay. But again, there should be kind of an exit plan and process how to not use that as a kind of a nightly basis. All right, so screen time. What are the effects of staring at that screen, checking that phone one last time? Right. <laughs> there, there's a lot of actually research being conducted on this topic. Um, and, you know, there's been some data to suggest that people who use their phone or tablet or computer, whatever it may be, that their sleep is more disruptive, you know, and they also have increased periods of uh, sleep latency. And, you know, it makes sense because your mind is being pulled into all these different things, you know, whether it's social media, the news, or whatever it may be, and that can obviously disrupt your sleep. And then there's some debate whether the blue light that's emitted from the these devices can actually stimulate your brain and kind of cause disruption of your sleep as well. Sleep routine then, the sleep hygiene, I mm -hmm. think is the term. What are the best practices? How do you set yourself up for the best possible sleep? One of the most important things that I stress to my patients is that having that routine is very critical, right? So our circadian rhythm, which is our biological clock, it has cues, right, that triggers for it to function properly. And if we don't have those cues that are consistent, it can obviously cause significant disruption with our sleep and our routine. So having a consistent daytime routine and a nighttime routine is very critical. And many people who, during the pandemic, if they're working from home or whatever they may be doing, they have lost that routine. And I think to reestablish that is very important. But, you know, basic things which I tell all my patients is that having consistent wake-up time is important, having that kind of winding down ritual, whatever it may be, again, whether it's mindfulness, reading, 
yoga, meditation, whatever it may be, to kind of get your mind to slow down before bed and calm and relax is important. The other things are your environment are important, right? So if you want to make sure your bedroom is dark, cool, your bed is comfortable, the mattress, pillow, the sheets, the clothes you're wearing, everything is nice and comfortable because obviously any little disruption in that can disrupt your sleep as well. All right. Caffeine in the morning? Caffeine, right. Caffeine, it can have different effects on different people. For example, my wife, if she has caffeine after 12 o'clock, she won't fall asleep until like 1 o'clock in the morning. Me, I can probably have a cup of coffee right before bed and I'll still fall asleep. Right? I've never understood that. <laughs> I have never understood yeah. people are going to have coffee after dinner and they're fine. So, it, you know, the caffeine can, again, have different effects on people. But people who are having difficulty with falling asleep, typically we recommend not having caffeine either afternoon or, you know, close to bedtime. But in the morning, it can definitely, obviously, give you that kick of stimulation and get your brain to kind of focus more if you need it. And then how about that nightcap idea? A little glass and, and that'll, yeah. that'll help me nod off. Yeah, so alcohol, it has obviously interesting effects on your sleep too. And short-term effects, it can kind of obviously induce sleep, but it has very difficult and problematic long-term effects on your sleep in terms of the quality of sleep you get, the disruption of sleep. So obviously people, if they drink heavily, it can cause significant damage, but usually we recommend not having alcohol before bed. If you've got somebody who's really got intractable insomnia, is your first priority quantity or quality? Typically, it would be quality, right? So there's something called sleep restriction, stimulus control that we use also part of, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. And part of that is to maximize the amount of time they're sleeping in bed. So if they're not able to fall asleep or within 15, 20 minutes, they should actually get out of the bed and do other things that are relaxing. Because again, it's important to kind of use the bed for, for sleep. So we talked about the sleep routine, best sleeping environment. Your top three tips to somebody, just somebody complaining about having lousy sleep, what are the first three things you would tell them to do? I think having that routine is critical where you kind of have that consistent wake up time where that's kind of the anchor of your sleep cycle. Having that, those cues, the daily routine like we talked about for your circadian rhythm is very important too where you know, you're doing exercise, all those things consistently. And uh, the third thing would be kind of having that winding down ritual, um, which is very important, I think, to, to kind of slow down and relax and kind of go into the moment of prior to going to sleep. So circling back to this whole apnea thing, just because the guy next to me is snoring like in an airplane landing doesn't mean he's sleeping well. Snoring can be the sign of a sleep disorder. Right, right. So snoring in itself, if it's not associated with sleep apnea, as of now, we don't believe it's technically harmful to you. But... Basically what snoring is, is it's the narrowing of the airways in the upper airway, and that's what causes vibration in the snoring sound. But many people who snore also have sleep apnea. There's a huge overlap. So if they're snoring in either other medical conditions where they have heart disease, blood pressure, diabetes, or if they have symptoms like daytime fatigue or sleepiness, headaches, you know, all these kind of different symptoms, then it definitely needs to be looked into deeper because it definitely could be associated with obstructive sleep apnea, which... Is, has been linked to medical uh, consequences. All right, tell us just a little more then about obstructive sleep apnea and the kind of consequences that could put somebody in another part of Deborah. Yeah. So obstructive sleep apnea is the narrowing of the airway, and it's typically the upper airway. And when that happens is you're not getting good flow of oxygen from your mouth into your lungs and then to your heart and your other vital organs. And that can obviously put a lot of stress on your heart specifically. You know, the, the lack of oxygen can cause disruption with your sleep as well because your brain waves are being disrupted when that's happening. Um, so many people with sleep apnea 
again report that they may be suffering from feeling tired, not feeling refreshed when they wake up, feeling sleepy, and that all comes down to that disruption in their sleep from those breathing events. And the medical consequences that have been linked to untreated sleep apnea can range from a whole multitude of things, but almost every cardiac morbidity you can think of has been linked to sleep apnea, heart disease, heart, heart failure, arrhythmias, um, strokes, and then other inflammatory issues like uh, diabetes, worsening obesity. The list could go on and on, but many of us believe that it comes down to the, the lack of oxygen that kind of triggers these events. Is the sleep lab really generally only used for sleep apnea, or are you... No, no, it's used for almost any sleep disorder, yeah. Okay, so what's that experience like for somebody if, if they're going to be monitored at home, what that's like, and if you say, you know what, we need more information, come into the lab, what that experience is? So for the sleep lab, typically the experience is they're, they come in in the evening. You know, we recommend that they bring their usual pajamas or whatever they typically like before they go to bed. Um, and when they come into the sleep lab, the technician typically wires them head to toe. So there's a lot of wires, obviously, because we're monitoring your brain waves, your heart, your breathing, your arm and leg movements. Um, and there's also a camera that's uh, involved where we're watching for any type of sleep behaviors. Um, and during that process, the patient has their own private room, their own bathroom. So it's obviously private, um, and we monitor them through their, throughout the whole night. Um, and typically they leave early in the morning once the testing is done. Um, as opposed to the home test, the home test is really designed only for sleep apnea. Um, and it's just a few wires that you put on your belly, chest, finger, and pretty much nose. And it's really telling me whether you're having any breathing pauses or your oxygen level is dropping. But it's not really telling me if you're sleeping or if you're awake because it's not monitoring your brain waves in that sense. Some technologies can do it, but most of them don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's very important to seek care, especially at a time right now. You know, Many people are going through many different problems, but uh, at Deborah, they're being very, uh, I guess, cognizant and, and being very extra careful in, in terms of safety. Patient safety is very critical to us, and especially in the clinics and in the sleep lab, everybody's getting screened, everybody's wearing a mask temperature checks, and obviously screening for symptoms. It's important to get your medical condition treated, especially if it's related to sleep or heart or lung disease, because unfortunately they can have significant consequences if they're not treated. In, in this current pandemic of COVID-19, it, it's very important to get your sleep health addressed if it's causing problems, because sleep deprivation and, and issues with sleep have been linked to a reduced immune function. and that's at this point in time it's very critical to obviously have your immune system working in your favor. So if someone's doctor says you need to take this up mm -hmm. to a sleep lab and a sleep specialist it's time or they've been putting it off and suspecting that there's something more serious going on and want to check in with you good people how do they contact your team here at Deborah? So they can visit the website at demanddeborah.org for more information.